I don't care how much education or previous wins you may have as a data scientist. If your organization is not competing well above its weight and, and consistently so, then your analytics department is a failure and I don't care how well it's run. David Gonzalez, welcome back to Winning with Data. Thanks. I'm glad to be here, Jake. One thing that came out of our first conversation was just as every single week, new AI products come to market and, and new incredible capabilities get shared around social media. It's very difficult for anyone really to tell the difference between exciting new capabilities and actual business solutions. Can you help us identify what we should be looking for and just how we can tell the difference and how we can think about capabilities that are on the market and pivot those or guide those or shepherd those into products that actually help us in our day-to-day and in our specific jobs that require specific domain features? Well, I think we jump in first with, you know, the the large language models and the generative AI models that have really taken the market and, you know, both the commercial and uh, the public market or, you know, retail market by storm, at least from a perspective of mindshare. You've got the generative models of the image nature, you know, mid-journey probably is the most advanced right now. And as enjoyable as it is to watch and see and even play with these models, you know, something that comes to mind when I interface with Midjourney through Discord uh, is that this is still a this is still an experience and a process that is so abusive, so as to indicate that it must be early on. This is not an interface designed for iteration. It's not an interface designed for generation. It doesn't have an API. It's using a chat interface that is familiar to gamers. And that tells you that like, they're really early on in their journey. And I would argue that the exact same thing could be said of ChatGPT, right? And the argument looks a little like, so OpenAI thought, hey, we're going to go build this you know, large-scale enterprise offering. We've got this API was the first thing out the door. This thing is pretty cool. We're going to beta test this and get human feedback and reinforcement. So we're gonna slap a a UI on top of it. And once again, the UI, you know, most generously we could say, hey, they cut to, you know, they cut to the chase and kind of followed a page out of the book of Google and just had one thing. I would argue that for most use cases, it is still so cumbersome and so painful um, and hard to integrate. Uh, the plugins is a huge move forward, right? In the step of, oh, I think we know how to go about doing this. But ChatGPT doesn't feel um, and hasn't felt like it was designed as a commercial offering for regular users because it wasn't. It was fully a surprise success. There's, there's just no doubt in my mind that, you know, this first offering was so much more popular than anticipated. And there's enough in the, you know, in the readout from OpenAI and and others to say that, yes, it was absolutely a surprise success. 
So what this tells us is that it's so early on that it'd be really difficult to say, hey, what are we missing? What we're missing is we don't know what these things are yet. We don't know how they're going to work. We don't know how they're going to be useful. And so what that means for most of us is wait and see. You know, in the story of data and data products, you have really two extreme approaches. You have essentially bringing to bear insight and understanding from common resources. That could be a third party, that could be aggregated data sets, et cetera. And on the extreme opposite end, you have, you know, bringing to bear insights and understanding that come from your own proprietary data. And, and I think really the question that most operations should be asking is, what is their bias and what is their stance on data today? Like, are they heavily leaning towards external data insight, right? Are they using consultants? Are they using third-party data feeds? And the features that those feed providers give the, to the organization, or are they on the other side where they're spending a considerable and the majority of their operational focus on extracting insight and understanding from their own proprietary data sources? You know, so these two extremes would mean, well, what do we do about these large models? And the way to treat them is their external data sources. And we got, we got to figure out first, where is an organization at? And then that can kind of help draw a line about how they should be thinking about what's next. You know, one common thread I find among our advisors at Gemini is that they will give advice that I don't dismiss, but I, I don't see it as immediately actionable or relevant when that conversation happens. And then at some point months down the line, I have a light bulb moment and call them back and say that they get to say, told you so. And, and you just touched on one of those points. And that is the juxtaposition of, of businesses, or in this case, sporting organizations using their own proprietary data and their own domain expertise to layer on top of something pre-existing to gain a competitive advantage. How have you seen that happen in other industries? And how have you seen that productized? In other industries, I think we'll go to finance, like because it's the easiest one to point to, and it's always the most mature. You know, so finance has a well-established suite of data feeds, and they're all you know very niche, right? So if you're working in a hedge fund, you have some data feeds. If you're working in a bank, you have some data feeds. If you're working in alternative finance, you also have some data feeds. And there's no distinct competitive advantage, like from leveraging those data feeds there is a distinct disadvantage from not leveraging them. Um, so it really is pay to play for the most part. If you're a, a larger organization, then you may have a slight competitive advantage if you're working in an immature vector within an industry, meaning that you may be a larger player or you might have some distinct kind of thing that you can leverage into, into a strategic partnership with a data feed provider and be developing the cutting edge of what's possible. That's that's really the only area where in common data feeds or third-party providers where you get a distinct advantage is, you know, you're kind of on the efficient frontier of that market and you can work with a data provider to build the next version of something. Because if you're working with a feed provider, typically that isn't, quote, proprietary. That is just, uh, you know, being in early beta. So you might have, you know, a few months advantage or a few weeks advantage 
in a very, very slow moving, immature organization you, or industry, you might have, uh, you know, a year or two advantage. I bring that up because, again, it comes back to really a strong organizational assessment of where are you at to determine where your biggest and quickest win would be in terms of, you know, eking out a competitive advantage on insight and data and analytics. Then you look at your own organization and operation, and that begins to kind of tell the story of what is your ability to execute. If all you can do is react to a third-party data feed and triggers that have been built into that third-party data feed, then you have no distinct advantage. Because operationalizing is not just simply reacting, but it's reacting to quickly and responding to how that intersects and interface, you know, intersects with your own internal operational understanding and ability to execute. And what this looks like is, you know, building out a pretty replete understanding of your book of business, whatever it may be. And when you really understand your book of business, if you really have a very strong data centric and insight strong understanding of your book of business, then new information feels like a, you know, like trigger with a cascade of impacts, as opposed to a first order response, which is simply, oh, there's new information. So an example of that, uh, that may be a little bit analogous, you know, or an analogy that may be a little bit helpful is, you know, a hedge fund isn't just built to react to third party data feeds. They have an, their own internal understanding of the world. And they have a model, right? And so what a data feed does is a data feed perturbs the model. And then that model, so the data feed perturbs the model, and the model has a cascade of results that the organization then turns into action. And if you don't have a robust model, proprietary built on your own understanding, then you're just moving at the pace of the data feed. And that is probably not a strong competitive advantage. Does that make sense? It does. And when you talk about operationalizing data, you know, the theme that we all come back to, and this gets said so much, but that getting the data organized and available and in a condition to gain insights from is, if not 80, maybe even 95% of the work. And you talked in the beginning about a lot of these exciting new products, yes, they've got some some flashy capabilities, but actually the biggest value to be derived is that they're bringing all this all this data to you. You know, in in finance and, and some of the other examples you gave, those are huge organizations with massive staff and and paying full price for for every every type of inter- enterprise infrastructure that's out there. You know, in sports, there's a enormous middle class of teams that have three to 10 staff that are skilled, that are hardworking, that are well-intentioned, that might just be starting to use cloud products and they're just flat out under-resourced. Um, very few teams are actually employing data engineers and data architects. So, you know, I, I'd love to think about in the context of, you know, obviously you, you've, you've 
put together a very interesting data services company that, that got acquired by a bigger platform company. There's applications, there's tools, there's all these different words that get confusing. A lot of big promises are made by products. You know, what does it look like for an organization that might not have data engineers on staff or might only have one to try and work with different data vendors and products to operationalize the data itself? When we look at an organization, and I'm going to recall what I said initially, it takes a fair bit of pragmatism to do a really brass tack self-assessment of where an organization sits and where their strengths are, right? So, you know, kind of classic SWOT analysis. Uh, When it comes to data and data products, data products are being hired internally to do jobs. And if you have, let's say you only have one person, right, on your on your data team. If you have one person on your data team, it could still be a complete and utter waste of resources if that person's output isn't actively hired by somebody as a product. Now, if it's just a full service and the person is just, you know, pivoting data, um, maybe running some models and coming up with some insights ad hoc all the time, that's still a waste of resources because there's no, you're not building a competitive advantage, right? You are not productizing understanding. You are not delivering uh, value on a regular cadence that can ultimately and hopefully, you know, in not too much time, be handed off to somebody maybe less capable or less technical. And so even if you just have one person there ought to be a pretty strident effort to understand what looks like a first order win and what will be the second order win. What will be the productization of that information stream and how will that individual contribute, participate, and ultimately let go of something because they've productized it by themselves or with cooperation with somebody else, right? And that could be internal and external resources. I think we've talked about this analogy that I have given about how when my children learn to play piano and very few of them have stuck with it. But, you know, we think it helps teach them a little bit of music theory, helps their brains. And, you know, over and over again, over the years, I've got five children and a whole cackle of them. And two of one, they've all done the following where they're practicing a song, they've been practice and they hit a snag, some troublesome spot. And instead of taking a breath, taking a beat, going back to the measure two before and playing through that difficult part, what do they do? They do what everybody on the planet does. They start from the beginning once again. This is how we make mistakes building process and product. We hit a snag and we go back to the beginning and we start over. And all this does is that it really cements into ourselves a well-established brilliant way to get to the mistake part and do the mistake over again. We're really practicing making mistakes. And so slowing down and finishing the song is the most important skill that you can learn in becoming adept at a musical instrument. And it turns out it's the only thing that an organization can do well because everything else just looks like practicing to fail. And so much of data products look like practicing to fail. There's actually one kind of weird reversal that happens, which is we get obsessed with the parts that we don't understand. So we overinvest in, say, modeling. 
And so we get really, really good at pipelining the data that we have into the model and not turning it into results and not turning it into a product and not turning it into a process. And we do this over and over again until the bottleneck, which is, quote, modeling or, you know, playing with data, starts to feel like the value that is being provided. And you know this because there's meetings, there's attention given, there's slide decks produced, there's reports given. And really, if you're looking at your organization and you strip out all of your data team and you think about the value that you deliver, then reinsert in your own mind and and meaningfully reinsert that data team to deliver the value that is absolutely mission critical. And if you don't have the bandwidth to do it, then you find partners. But you are all focused, partners included, on delivering only the value that you would deliver otherwise. There's just not enough exaggerated value with, quote, insight devoid of any context that you should spend any time just letting a data team or even an executive with a pet problem play with, quote, data. There has to be an imperative. Yeah, it feels like the ad hoc requests are just this black hole. And so much of the day-to-day of many analytics departments seems to be repeatedly drowning in ad hoc requests. And I think some of the most successful analytics departments and, you know, let's say data-driven organizations that I've observed or been a part of have had really sound infrastructure and they've known what they can achieve and what they can't in terms of really crushing a couple of specific business cases and, and then acknowledging that that's you know, that they have a current limit in a certain place because, you know, what you spoke about there, it feels like always watching out for the so what moment where you take something all the way down and then the answer is, okay, cool. So what? Well, and to kind of pile on on that, Jake, what I would say is there is no such thing as a successful analytics department that isn't part of a very successful organization. It just doesn't happen. That's cart before the horse. That is pay no attention to the wizard behind the curtain, right? A successful analytics department is part of a very successful organization. And very successful organizations don't necessarily need successful analytics departments to be successful. So there needs to be a huge dose of humility. I don't care how expensive the person is that you hired. I don't care, I don't care how much education or previous wins you may have as a data scientist. If your organization is not competing well above its weight and and consistently so, then your analytics department is a failure and I don't care how well it's run. Yeah. So how can folks in those positions set appropriate expectations of stakeholders and help to guide and frame to the ultimate decision makers what it means to have, I'll use the word besides successful, maybe a, a productive analytics department or one that drives value and drives the success of the organization? It may just be that it's Monday, you know, I had a good weekend, but I'm not feeling very generous today, Jake. And so I don't know. I don't know that an analytics department can manage up. I really, I've watched this now for over a decade, and I just don't think that you can bring in somebody and have them make it work. There has to be an executive. There has to be leadership from the top who really understands. Now, you can have a, a, a frank conversation and as an analytics leader with maybe your champion executive and say, probably the, 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 the brass tax truth, say, look, I'm going to give us maybe a quarter or two 
to get our shit together. But if this doesn't work out, no harm, no foul. I got to move on with my career. Leadership, it is your job to understand well and communicate clearly what the clear value prop is within an organization, where the value centers are, where the resources lay, and how you deliver value in the market. And then to pipeline in an analytics team to contribute meaningfully to that value delivered and nothing else. There is no partial credit in business. This is something that I have been taught time and time again, and it sucks. And my saddest days are when I have gotten validation for partial credit on something that didn't actually deliver value. And I came to realize that. Yeah, I think that's going to strike a chord with a lot of folks working in analytics departments at sports because I I hear a lot about struggles to deliver ad hoc requests at a velocity that is impactful, lack of patience from the top on infrastructure and on architecture and on pipelines and systems, frankly, and lack of clarity or consistency on the objective of their department on uh, on on what on what the organization is trying to get out of that group of people. So maybe if, if that executive champion is listening, if you're a general manager wanting your org to be more data-driven, what should you expect out of your analytics department? What should you be asking for and how can you make it clear to them? As a general manager, your best effort is in, again, really nailing down where the value is appreciated within your organization. Like how do you deliver value to the marketplace? You know, in sports, so much need, attention needs to be paid to the most expensive assets that you have, your, your, your talent, your athletes, understanding the pipeline problem, understanding the training problems, understanding the trade problems, right? And really nailing down where are those things being done in your organization well? I would really start with the things that are going well. I, I would not focus my analytic bandwidth attention on things that need to be improved. You're going to learn so much and you're going to have so much transferable skills develop if you focus your attention on where you're strongest, because that's where you can also bring a more effectively a win with external data. And maybe you'll find that that's what's happening. Maybe you've got really smart people who are working with you know, partners or, or what have you. And they really are developing a pretty solid data-focused you know, decision-making operation. Then you need to assess where that situation's at, work with the stakeholders, and as a general manager, figure out how to better support. Now, better support's a hard question because better support could mean make decisions more quickly, right? That could be better support. Better support could be making marginal decisions that we're afraid to make, right? So decisions that right now are just like, we're just too scared to pull the trigger on these decisions. You know, we've got this long tail operation. There's these, you know, maybe let, let's just talk about talent. There's talent that's kind of niche. Don't know if they're a fit for our team. We know we can get them maybe, you know, more cheaply or maybe even not cheaply, but we think that what we pay for, their, for them would make more of an impact to us than to our competitors. So decision support is really where analytics shines. I think we get a lot too fetishized around ex nihilo or these surprising insights that somebody who has very little understanding of the operation just pulls out of their hat. They're like, hey, did you know? 
you know, these kind of whataboutisms. And the reality is that stuff is so rarely, I know it makes great stories, it makes great movies and great TV, right? But that stuff is so rarely the key differentiator and the durable win within an organization. So figuring out what best support means as a general manager with your strongest operation is your number one thing to do. Because once you figure that out, then you really have a clear imperative and directive for any analytic talent and analytic operation that you bring to bear. If it is making marginal calls, uh, you know, kind of a risk-adjusted basis, then you can start to work back from there and say, what is the infrastructure that's needed? And you don't have to go to the mats and, and build a pristine pipeline system that scales to the moon. You just need to build an adequate pipeline and system that scales to the cadence of the operation. I don't know. Does that make sense? It does. And if you keep saying smart stuff, we're going to have to do this monthly. <laughs> all right. I'll, I'll, I'll get dumber here in a second. <laughs> I think that's all I've got for today, Gonzo. Any parting advice that you have for folks making decisions on technology, partners, their departments themselves internally on all of this technology that's exploding? And obviously, we'll have more chance to chat about this in the future. But just, yeah, what's on the shelf versus, you know, what's internal versus what's, what's flashy and grabbing attention right now? Flashy stuff that's there on the cusp, you know, like do keep a, you know, keep an ear to the ground on what's happening with chat GPT, keep an ear to the ground what's happening with, you know, some of these generative AI, unless you've got a strong understanding of your internal organization and where value is delivered and how you're going to lead your data and analytics operation to contribute to that. Do not be taking meetings from people who are promising the moon based on large language models, because it's just so shiny, right? And it's a distraction. And remember this, general managers, there's no partial credit. There's just no partial credit. So you can't hire yet another technology and hope that one more partial thing will sum to some astronomical win. It won't happen. There's no magic. Nobody's coming for you. You've got this, but you got to do it by yourself. So trust in sound operation, trust in sound decision-making, and figure out how best to support that with data and analytics. And when you look at your organization and you see that you're really strong on proprietary internal data, but you're weaker on external data, figure out if that's the problem. But don't just immediately go after more external data. And if the situation is reversed, don't immediately spin up an internal organization to start to try and, quote, clean up your internal data. Figure out first where the win is and then work backwards from there and then start to lever out from that strategy. You will find that the laggard areas in your organization will be blessed by really sharpening where you're best at and taking skills and understanding and process refinement from that operation and helping it bless the other areas in your organization where you're weaker. David Gonzalez, thanks for your time today. Absolutely. Take care. 